Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome back to another episode of Slay House Presents. I'm your host, Trevor. With me this week is my esteemed guest, Laura Senf. Laura is a writer of dark and twisty stories for all ages, including the Bram Stoker Award finalist, The Clackety, and the latest book in the Blight Harbor series, The Nighthouse Keeper. She credits her love of words to her parents and to the public library that was within walking distance from her childhood home. Laura finds inspiration for her writing in her children's retellings of their dreams, on road trips through Montana, and most recently while visiting the Anaconda Smokestack. She lives in eastern Washington with her husband, their twins, and two cats who think they're people. Their house may or may not be haunted. Welcome, Laura, to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Trevor. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you, not only because I think that the clackety and The Night Housekeeper are two of the finest books I've ever read, uh, but also just because I think that uh, you're an amazing person and I'm really excited to have you. I'm blushing. I'm a blusher. I mean, you know, that doesn't translate <laughs> to uh, to the podcast, but thank you. Absolutely. I I want to hear your stories about public libraries growing up um, because I am absolutely a public library kid that is hundred percent my story and I just love to hear about experiences uh, that people had with libraries growing up well we were so fortunate we had um a library uh, a mile a mile and a half from the house I grew up in my parents still live there and that library is still there um I didn't realize as a kid until I was maybe a teenager or a little older even that my family was very much working poor and both my parents worked at least two jobs at any given time. Um, there was never a lot of money, but, but it was the, it, I, I, I don't want to, it's not a sob story because it was something I just didn't realize when I was growing up. Um, but it did mean that for a kid like me, who was a voracious reader from, from go, I mean, I was, I was reading very young that there was no way my parents could have afforded to keep me in books if they had to buy books, even at the used bookstore that we went to sometimes, there was just no way they, they could have done that. And so we were at the library once or twice a week. Um, we brought home as many as we could carry and probably lost more than a few along the way. But uh, <laughs> but that the, between the public library and the library in my elementary school, really, that's how I stayed in books. Um, I I can't, I cannot put enough importance on the value of the public library, mm. especially, I mean, to everyone, but, but gosh, especially to kids who are such voracious readers when, when they find reading. Mm. I feel like my story is very much the same. Um, I, not to say that um, my parents were, I mean, super poor. Uh, we, we were very much more privileged than I think other families um, were, but, you know, growing up. But I still remember my dad working multiple jobs all the time. Yeah. My mom having to have a part-time job. Um, and like you, I mean, I was a, a very voracious reader. Um, and so my mother would take me 
to the the library at least once a week where we would trade out books. Um, mm -hmm. And th that was just such a, a hugely important process of discovery for me. Yeah. Um, we were, we were homeschooled. I attended a, a private school for just a couple of years before it was just very clear. I was, it was not going to work out for me. Um, mm -hmm. The classroom was really just not a good space for my brain to develop. Yeah. I needed much more than a teacher could give me. And so um, the library was really the place where I was just given free reign to just explore, just find things, find ideas, find books that spoke to me. And I read anything I could get my hands on, um, whether it be fiction, nonfiction, you know, I was pulling books uh, out of the Dewey Decimal System to find like, where's my alien books? You know, where's my book yeah. on dinosaurs? Yeah. You know, it, it was such a delightful process of discovery for me that I think very sadly, we keep kind of losing track of with the internet age. I think it's changed a, a lot of how we think about book discovery, how we think about reading. Um, and yet I still see libraries as this kind of shining beacon of literacy, so important to a kid's development. Yeah, as do I, as do I. And, you know, you, uh, you mentioned just kind of the access, right? The access to to anything right because we did it, i didn't have the internet i had the library and so i went through a titanic phase and i went through a salem witch trials phase <laughs> and there were so many books i could just go get so many books some of them totally inappropriate and well above you know my, my real reading level <laughs> but they were there and i could take them home and i could read what i could and that was amazing yeah that that's <laughs> that's where i found Oddly enough, my love for things like Shakespeare, my love for uh, Sherlock Holmes, you know, it, it might have started with a kid adaptation of something. And then sure. I was like, well, what is that like? You know, are there other stories? And of course, they sailed right over my head, but that yeah. did not yeah. keep me from from seeking them out, from really finding them. I think that kind of leads a little bit into one of my first real questions for you about you know, literacy and, and children's literacy in particular, because you write uh, middle grade horror, mm -hmm. um, even though I think that your books are absolutely resonant for readers of all ages, the target audience is, um, you know, middle grade readers, those kind of, would you say it's like nine to, to 13 or? That's about right. I think my publisher says 10, 10 and up. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I've had kids a lot younger read them, and of course, folks a lot older. But but yeah, I think the target's somewhere in that 9 to 13 range. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about kind of the function of, of literature for that particular demographic. You know, what are the kinds of stories being told? And, and um, you know, why is it so important that we have a literature for that age group kind of specifically? I think there are so many answers to that. The the first answer that comes to mind is is what I think about often, which is genre literature for for that age. So many of us jumped into, and you may have a similar story, jumped into, and it's always Stephen King, and we always started reading King way too young, <laughs> um, and and I was one of those, um, because there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot to to really. Um, 
meet my desire for scary stories. I discovered scary stories with John Belair's and it was kind of all done from there. I, I was, I was hooked on scary stories. Um, but they're just as when I was a kid, there wasn't much genre written for me. So I was reading adult genre books and that's fine. I, I was a kid who could do that, but that's not fine for every kid. And really children deserve books written for them that that speak to them not about them but mm. to them and that take their their lives and their concerns and and their anxieties very seriously and i think that's that's what's so exciting to me and i know i'm going i'm going off off track from what you asked here that's it's what's so exciting to me about what's happening in middle grade horror right now that mm. there are so many books coming out that that are speaking to kids about things that they care about and things that worry them in a way that uh, that they want to be spoken to. I love what you say about speaking to them and not about them. And I, I kind of want to hone in on that just a little bit. You know, what is it that is so important about a, a literature that that really kind of centers in on on their experience and um you know tries to kind of address them through what a piece of literature is is kind of exploring um versus something that's just like you know kids are maybe a part of the story but it's it's not necessarily their story i think one of the most important things that comes out of reading that, that comes out of being a reader and having a relationship with literature is that we 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 learn a lot of things right we we learn a lot of things about ourselves and about others but empathy is chief among them and it's it's very hard to to help kids develop that capacity for empathy without giving them stories that they themselves can relate to not stories they've been through necessarily. It doesn't have to speak to their lived experience, but it's it's got to be um, presented in a way. I think that that the young reader can see themselves in it, can truly see themselves um, in the role of that character. Um, I think that there's probably a lot more to it that I'm not getting to, but that's the first thing. What what do you think? I mean, I, I no, I think you're totally right. Um... I think a lot about the literature that I read growing up and how much I loved it for how fun it was. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think to the stuff that I was reading when I was in that kind of middle grade age, and I, I don't think I had a great transition through mm -hmm. those ages, like two different literatures. And I think a lot about what I kind of missed maybe developmentally because I I didn't have that kind of transitional literature I I read a lot of like Hank the cow dog that was mm -hmm. one of my favorite series growing up um was just this I don't know this this funny farm dog and his weird quixotic quest to keep his yeah. Texas ranch from different harms whether that harm be something like a coyote that mm -hmm. he is constantly feuding with or like the vacuum cleaner, which he sees as, <laughs> as right. you know, kind of this vampiric entity. But I, I went from Hank the Cow Dog, which is very comedic and just oh. very lighthearted and very fun 
to like Sherlock Holmes and Shakespeare (laughs) and totally radically different ideas, totally different concepts. As I continued to read, I mean, I think the only real middle grade fiction that I read was probably uh, the Redwall series, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is maybe even a little bit aged up from just middle grade reading. Yeah. Um, but I did not go through like a YA phase. I, I went like straight into general audience adult fiction. And I think that I, again, I, I feel like I missed something in that process. I missed the opportunity to interrogate and understand my feelings as I was growing through them. There was no literature that I just happened across that helped address the stuff that I was feeling emotionally. Yeah. And so as a result, I ended up an adolescent with a lot of confusing rage about the world, a lot of um, depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration with what I felt was kind of the inconsistency between what adults told me the world was supposed to be like as I was supposed to act, right? And and the way that I actually saw adults act and, and the way I saw other kids act, the inconsistency between those two ideals created a lot of frustration for me. Um, so I, I read now, you know, back on stuff like the clackety, which I think is serving a very important emotional um uh kind of development like i see is serving a a real function there for for students uh, and for kids you know to to see reflected in the characters the same anxieties the sweaty palms the sweaty back you know of confronting something hard and i i wish i had that kind of representation when when i was uh, you know in those middle grades when i was going through that same process Sorry, I think I think you're touching on something really important. I I've heard a lot of people in their right say, you know, I didn't do middle grade. I didn't need it. I jumped right from kids books to adult books and it was fine. And it is. For a lot of people it is fine. But for a lot of young readers it's not. And that's where we risk losing them, right? If we don't give them what they need that's appropriate that's written, I don't even want to say appropriate. Appropriate's not the right word. That's intended. For them if we don't provide them books intended for them those are the kids we risk losing not the ones that can jump straight to stephen king and sherlock holmes they're going to be mm. fine right as readers though they're, they're going to get it like you i missed kind of the middle grade ya um thing i i didn't experience it which meant as an adult i went back and started reading a lot of it a lo- yeah. new and and classic um because i i realized when i was a bookseller years ago that there was a huge gap in my own reading I just missed it. I I think it's interesting too. You bring up this idea of like losing them, right? Um, And and I I I just for our listeners, I kind of want to know like what your definition of losing them is. Um, You know, kind of what are you talking about? Yeah, I suppose uh, it's pretty simple. That that if you've got kids that are happy readers with their their picture books and chapter books and and those those younger readers. And then there's not something written for them that that speaks to them and is intended for them. There are plenty of those kids that are never going to make the jump to adult literature. They they need the staircase. They need the literary staircase of middle grade and young adult to get them to adult literature. 
And those, those are the kids I'm thinking about. Um, again, not, not those that jump straight to adult and are fine are going to be fine, mm -hmm. but there's, there's a whole generation. I believe that there's a whole generation of kids out there that will not be adult readers. If we don't mm -hmm. provide them the books they want and need that are intended for them in their middle end and upper um, teen years. So uh, let me ask you a little bit um, because I, I'm, I feel like I'm absolutely with you in thinking about, you know, literacy. I'm, I'm absolutely a champion for literacy, but what do you see as kind of the problem for those children that kind of drop off, you know, that don't become adult le uh, uh, readers, you know, what, what is lost there in that that transition into adulthood where they, they're not reading so much? I am not a book elitist. I think you can live a very fulfilling life and not be a reader. I I, I know plenty of folks that aren't readers that have wonderful lives. I, I want folks to at least have the chance. I want them to at least have the opportunity to have books as as part of their lives, as part of their experience. And I think that's what could be lost. I, I don't think that that people are better or worse people for being readers necessarily. I think I'm a better person for having been a reader, but I can only speak to myself. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I certainly wouldn't generalize that. Um, but but I, I do think it's an opportunity lost and experiences mm -hmm. that that folks won't even get a chance to have. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I'm I'm I struggle a lot with my my thoughts about literacy. Um, and, and kind of where I see literacy playing a role, um, you know, in, in stuff like civics, in, mm -hmm. in civic duty, mm -hmm. um, as a, uh, I teach at a community college. Um, I know you, you've had some experience with community yes. colleges as well. Um, and I, I really champion community college as much as I can, because I think they serve a vital function in education and the development of a community. Um, and the, the kinds of people that I see coming into a community college, um, you know, they, they really are trying to find a means of adding greater depth, greater dimension to their lives, yeah. um, perhaps career advancement, you know, just providing a better life for themselves, for their families. And many of the students that I have personally are working parents. Um, they are adults who have never done the college route, don't even know if it's for them. They're in their 30s, in their 40s, sometimes in their 50s, um, who are just looking for, you know, kind of more of that, that experience. But I see a lot of them come into my introductory lit classes, whether it be an English class or a world literature class, never having had that experience, never having had the experience of reading something. And they are quite fearful that they're going to run into this kind of like wall of elitism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the people mm -hmm. who are like, how have you never read this before? And I, I feel like a lot of what I'm trying to do constantly is show them the value yeah. of adding fiction, you know, to their world, um, adding a diet for reading because it mm -hmm. can expose us to ideas that broaden our horizons and can help broaden our understanding of where we kind of sit in our communities, in our societies. The, you know, the, the questions I think we ask ourselves 
and how we are to relate to one another, if that makes any kind of sense. It does, you know, and I'm thinking about literacy now in a couple of ways. So we've been talking, in my mind, we've been talking about literacy as not the ability to read, but performing the act of reading, engaging in the act of reading. So mm. are people literate in that regard? Um, when I worked at the community colleges, I spent years teaching adult basic education, and I worked with adults who were truly struggling readers, who were truly reading at the first, you know, if, if you have to have mm -hmm. to quantify it, the first, second, third grade reading levels. Yeah. And for those folks, that's truly, we're truly then talking about the nuts and bolts definition of literacy. And there's an, there's innumerable, innumerable consequences to that. Oh, yeah. um, everything from simple access to information to the ability to fill out uh, a resume or a job application. Um, there so not even getting into fiction and and that that higher thought that higher kind of literacy mm -hmm. um so i suppose i do think about literacy in a couple of different ways and i don't i don't know what it would have taken for those folks they each had their own stories as as to how they they found themselves in in that place um but i did have a number of them we we would read um middle grade books together we would have a book club and we would read middle grade books together and uh for some of them, it was it would be the first book that they had ever read. Oh wow! Um, I remember one one year we as a group read Holes together, mm. and uh, I was trying to find a middle grade book that I thought adults would would enjoy, and they did enjoy it. And more than one came to me and said, "You know, that's the first book I've ever read." And there was a real empowerment to that, to having read that first book that that meant something. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. Um... I suppose too many of us who have always read books, you know, kind of yeah. take that for granted. Um, I know I think often about, you know, access to literature and, and what that access kind of represents, because it's it's not just access to ideas, which I think are important, again, to kind of forming um, our understanding of, of the relationship we have to others, the relationship we have to our communities, uh, and the obligations, I think, that come with that kind of knowledge um but i also think about man I, th I think a lot about access to just just to information you know how my reading skills have empowered me to get into the job that i wanted to get you know right. and and the the economic opportunities that that opened up to me right. um and how crucial that access is because i think that you know for me i never had to worry about um, getting a book because there was a library down my street and, mm -hmm. and my parents would take me to that library once a week. You know, it was very easy for me to get that access. But I also think of living in a different part of the country and what that would look like. Um, we moved, when I was a kid, we moved um, uh, around a lot, my father for work. And uh, one of the last moves we made was from upstate New York, um, where I was a teenager with a really fantastic library. I went to a high school, which was the first school I had ever seen with a real library inside mm -hmm. the high school. And then we moved to this very small town in Kansas where the only library we had for 40 miles was just a little Carnegie library with mm -hmm. absolutely ancient resources, you know, no real selection to speak of and how limiting that experience felt in comparison yeah 
and, and so I, I I think a lot about those kinds of of situations. You know, a family that does not have the exposable income to just buy stuff on the internet and have right. a book shipped to the house. You know, right. how vital these resources are. Yes. You know, to those communities. So I I feel like this also opens up a question about. I think a lot of conversations around the country surrounding uh, children's literature and children's access to literature and the, the quote unquote suitability of books for children. Um, and a lot of the time horror gets brought up as, you know, kind of a question of, is this suitable for kids? So I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about what you see the utility of genre fiction specifically like horror um, you know, for children and how we should think about some of these challenges that are, are coming from um, you know, certain political parties about the accessibility of, of literatures for children. So I always have to laugh a little bit when someone suggests that, um, that my book or other, other middle grade horror books are going to be too, too dark, too scary. Just, you know, kids, it's, it's just not, it's not something they want kids exposed to. I remember reading Bridge to Terabithia, and I remember being read in class where the red fern grows, oh and gosh. every child in the classroom sobbing, and the teacher sobbing, and we're all traumatized by that book. We all love that book, but we're all traumatized by it. <laughs> I promise you, there is more in in Terabithia and where the red fern grows, and some of the fairy tales and some rolled doll. There's as much darkness or more darkness in those stories as there is in, in middle grade horror. The, the difference is we just didn't call it horror, but it was, <laughs> right? It was. Absolutely. <laughs> we just didn't call it that. So now we've got this label that so many of us have embraced because, yeah, of course, I, I love horror. I love kids. I love writing horror for kids. It's the best. But that that label, I think there are just too many folks out there that uh, that hear the word horror and all the only image they have is, you know, Freddie and Jason, and they think that's what all horror is. And some <laughs> great horror is that, right? Sure. But it's not all that. Um, so I, th I think just the label has scared people off and has sort of um, made them unable to think about this critically. Because, again, anyone who thinks through the books that were read to us intentionally by adults when we were children <laughs> knows that these scary things, these traumatizing things have been presented to kids forever. So I, I just, I, the, the conversation always amuses me, saddens me, but amuses me a little bit. I'm, I'm a little sad you brought up uh, where the red fern grows because uh, I buried those, <laughs> those memories so deep. Sorry. <laughs> I should, trigger warning where the red fern grows. <laughs> <laughs> My, I, I distinctly remember my parents giving me that book and saying, read this. It's about, it's this about a boy and his dog. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what could possibly go wrong? I got to the, I got to the end and I was like, what? <laughs> I, could, I could not deal with it. I don't think I've dealt with that book for, for you know, <laughs> that's like 25 years of my life. <laughs> Same with Old Yeller. Uh, Old Yeller, yep. Yeah, I, I turned Same. that I turned that movie off, and I will never watch it again. Oh gosh! 
oh no i i have never once suggested to my children that they read those books because uh i i i don't think i can read those books again i really don't <laughs> i think i think that the i think it's too deep i, th I think the pain is too deep <laughs> i absolutely agree oh my god you know, as far as the the role that um trying to get back to your question the role of genre in literacy skills i'm just a big proponent of giving kids access to what they want to read if, if you want mm. kids to turn into readers provide them things they're interested in and for some kids that's um that's going to be horror and for some kids that's going to be science fiction and for some kids that's going to be military history i don't know it's going to be different for for every child <laughs> but but give them access to the thing they want to read and they'll read i see it in my own kids i have i have twins and my my daughter was a kid who picked up reading really fast and she just was a natural reader my son is was was not much of a reader until he discovered of all things minecraft and pokemon and he wanted to read he wanted to learn everything he could about minecraft and pokemon and now i catch him in bed at night you know past 10 o'clock reading a book but that's because i just let him read the guy, I don't know. I don't, I don't know for Minecraft and Pokemon, but I let him read the guides and I let him, if that's what he wanted to get at the bookstore, he got it because I knew he'd read it. So it's not even just about horror. It's just allowing kids access to what, what they want to read. So let's talk a little bit about your books uh, because the Nightkeeper, which is the sequel to the, the Clackety is coming out October 17th. And the Clackety was just released in paperback after mm -hmm. a, a run of about a year in hardback. Right, right. What are some of the things that you try to address through the clackety um, and through the Nighthouse Keeper? If you could kind of give us just a little bit of a synopsis of what these books are, and then some of the major themes that you're trying to discuss. The clackety is the story of almost 13-year-old Evie von Wraith, and she lives in a town called Blight Harbor. It happens to be the seventh most haunted town per capita in America. And she lives there with her Aunt Desdemona, who's a, a paranormal expert in this very haunted town. And Des doesn't have many rules for Evie, but she does have one, and that's to stay out of this abandoned abattoir at the edge of town. And of course, because Des doesn't want her there, Evie really wants to go there. Um, but she, she obeys and, until she doesn't, because one day she knows Des is going there and she follows her. And that's when Des gets taken and Evie meets a creature called the Clackety. And the Clackety kind of lives in the shadows and seams of that slaughterhouse. And it it's not a very reliable creature, but it does offer Evie what it calls a good fair deal. That if she were to go through a, uh, a strange neighborhood of seven houses and get through to the other side, she can get her aunt back. Oh, but there's one catch. The ghost of serial killer John Jeffrey Pope's roaming around there too so just keep an eye out for him so the story is really about Evie making her way through that neighborhood in hopes of rescuing her aunt and uh I I wrote that book originally it was a one book deal I didn't know if it would ever have a sequel I left it open into just enough that I I hoped um I could and then fortunately I I have been able to write two more books uh for Evie The Nighthouse Keeper brings us back to Blight Harbor just a couple weeks after the events of the Clackety and the ghosts of Blight Harbor are going missing and Evie suspects this is not a good thing and some pretty smart people she trusts also suspect this is not a good thing 
And Evie doesn't really intend to go back over to that, that strange world she had visited, but she ends up there anyway. And so the night housekeeper is, is her attempt to, uh, to rescue those missing ghosts, but it also, she, she meets someone along the way, uh, a, an 11 year old ghost, 111 year old ghost named Lark, who she befriends and Lark becomes part of her kind of reason for, for making it through this quest as well. I want to leave it a little vague, but, uh, I love these two books uh, for so many, so many different reasons. Um, but one of the things I, I found really interesting about the Clackety and the Nighthouse Keeper as they relate to one another is just how kind of complex a lot of the emotional framework is for both of these books. So, you know, what were some of the things that you were hoping to explore with Evie um, kind of about Evie's life and, you know, what Evie is kind of going through at this particular moment in her development. So Evie, I, I will will start by saying Evie is very much who I wanted to be when I was that age. She, um, I was a kid who had a lot of anxiety. We didn't really talk about anxiety in kids when I was young. You were just kind of a weird kid. You know, you didn't, <laughs> no one thought about uh, yeah. therapy or, you know, <laughs> interventions or anything you were just a weird kid um so I thought well I want to write a story about the kind of kid that I was but but with better tools and with a better understanding of of who they are and how how to deal with some of those things that come with having anxiety and I want them to be dropped right into the middle of a scary story so what happens if you take a kid that was like me and drop them right into the middle of a scary story and so I really wanted to examine what happens if you've got somebody who's so scared but they're so brave and they're both of those things at the same time like what does that look like to to really spend time with a character like that who's who's terrified of so much but despite it all is is just incredibly brave who wants to be um who wants who who sort of wants to be a hero only in as much as she wants to save her family. She's she's not trying to be um, much more than that. She doesn't see herself as special. She's she's not magical. She's not gifted. She's kind of just a kid with anxiety in a really bad situation. And I, I wanted to to spend time with that and and allow her to be as brave and as frightened as as she wanted to be and and that was that was important to me in these stories and to see kind of how far she'd be able to go for this 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 person this this is her person aunt des is is really the last family that she has and she what will she do what will she do to to save that i think a lot about the middle grade fiction that i've read at least in the last couple of years and <clears throat> Gosh, how important it is, I think, um, to show kids struggling through a lot of these issues. You know, um, I think about my own anxiety and how long that went unaddressed for me. Um, I think about my anxiety as an adult, um, my my wife's anxiety. Um, I think it too about, I mean, shoot, I have a bunch of employees who work for me. I think about their anxiety all the time. How can I help dismantle some of that? How can I empower them, um, you know, to kind of work through a lot of those issues to become more confident 
in themselves. And I see the way that Evie kind of reacts to situations, the decisions that she has to make, the ownership she has to take over some of the circumstances that she finds herself in. Um, and just how powerful I feel some of that messaging is for a lot of kids who, you know, struggle with the same sorts of things. I wanted um, this journey to be Evie's. And so she, in Clackety, she's got her little buddy Bird. Um, but as, as and, and I, I love Bird very much, but Bird doesn't, Bird can advise and Bird can, can, um, Bird's almost a Jiminy Cricket in some ways. Bird mm. can do many things for Evie, but Bird can't take the journey for Evie. And that comes into play a couple times that that Evie literally has to take the steps in her journey. Bird can't do it for her. Um, it's up to her. And that was that was really important to me that she not have um kind of the the adult or the magical creature that that did it for her, that she she really had to do it. And I think I just wanted to explore how that would happen. How how would a kid do that? Um, how would how would I in that in that incarnation that I wished I had been, how would I have done that? And in the second book, um, we we find her a little bit more self-assured. And she's she's been there and done that a little bit. Um but some of the choices she has to make aren't quite as black and white. There, she has to do some things that that she's not quite so sure were it were absolutely right. And and that that brings kind of a new challenge for her as well. Do you feel like it was difficult for you to try to give all of that agency over to the character of Evie? Um, I mean, kind of as a from a writerly standpoint, I know that developing a character is almost like getting to know a person and mm -hmm. allowing that person to kind of surprise you. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel like you were um, like especially challenged in in trying to present these situations for Evie and then how Evie kind of handles them? Evie is a person in my head and I, I kind of trust her to make her decisions right or wrong. Um, she, and they're not always, they're not always right, but I, I, trust her to make some of those decisions and see where she takes the story and you know I used to hear authors say that characters surprised them and I thought oh not really because <laughs> you're in charge but really they do sometimes they really do and the, the character takes a turn that you just don't expect and uh, I've, I've found a lot of joy in in following that I I'm not a plotter I don't really outline I don't um I go into writing a book with about a page of notes so that I know some high points I want to hit, but uh, but I, I I kind of am surprised along the journey. So no, that that was more of a joy than a than a struggle for me. I really love the way that, I mean, Evie has and and is able to exhibit so much agency in mm -hmm. these stories. Um, and I I struggle sometimes to call it. Do we call it agency? Do we call it authority? Where is the line between the two? But but I love the way that. Evie is kind of presented with these challenges and then has to figure her way through them. And I, I feel like that serves as a, a healthy model for this particular age. You know, the, the, the kind of struggle we all have in kind of coming into our own authority, our own agency, suddenly realizing that 
the world around us is a lot more malleable than we think that there are figures in authority who maybe aren't always the more most authoritative or always the most trustworthy mm-hmm. and and having to come into like making your own decisions I, I feel like this is a critical you know point of emotional growth for a lot of students and a lot of kids did you feel like that was something that that you were also trying to work through you know for Evie and for your readership for, for sure for Evie um it's a little tricky in that all three Blight Harbor books take place over less than one summer so really it's a short time frame you can only have so much realistic character growth in that time frame uh, but you still you still want to give your your character room to breathe and grow and so I think what we what you will find is that from the beginning of the first book to the end of the third um Evie really does find more independence and she does find more agency she she really by the end of the third book she really is in charge and she really is making the decisions and she really is not leaning on anyone or anything to to do what has to be done. You know, we're in the past. She she always had, um, Evie has her backpack and she has bird and she has things that she can lean on to, and, and you know, characters that show up along the way to to help and to guide. Mm-hmm. Um, some more of that in Clackety, less of that mm-hmm. in in Nighthouse. She had she had less of that kind of help in Nighthouse. And I think by the end of the third book, um, you'll you'll see there's less of it still. Do you feel like that kind of character growth um ties in a little bit with the idea of kind of your your growing readership because you know Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are some kids who read the clackety last year and they're a year older now as night housekeepers is coming out and they're they're going to be still older then when the third book in the blight harbor series comes out does that weigh into some of the decisions you make for evie's kind of character arc Yes and no. Um, if I only wrote to the kids that that started Clackety when it came out and then went straight to Nighthouse, you know, who read these books over a three year mm-hmm. period, that that would be a little bit tricky in that you would you would be writing to three years of of childhood, right? Right. Um so I'm writing for them, but I'm also writing for the kids that don't find Clackety until next year when the third mm-hmm. book comes out and read all three. So there's got to be a balance there. But I think if you don't show any growth throughout this journey, then you're, you, you are going to lose some of those readers. They're, they're, it's going to feel a little bit stagnant to them. What has served as some of the inspiration for the kinds of adventures that Evie has been on uh, in these two books? Oh, I, I have a whole slide that I show kids about inspiration and where you know the inspiration has come for for the Blight Harbor books. But certainly when it comes to reading, um, you'll find John Belair's in my stories. Um, I think it's hard. He, he was my first favorite author. And I feel like I'm always, there's a, there's a, there's a, a 10-year-old part of me that's always writing in hopes that John, who's not been with us for many years, will pick up my books and read them someday. Um, <laughs> so certainly, certainly his books. Um, my, I really... I, I'm trying to do so many things with these books. I'm, I'm trying to approach those issues that we talked about, the anxiety and, and the independence. But I also just want to tell a story. I just, 
there are going to be plenty of readers that don't want all that subtext that mm. that just want a monster to be a monster and a scary story to be a scary story <laughs> and just tell me a good story and so i really try to approach these as kind of a love letter to to storytelling um mm. a love letter to story i love story and that really comes from i started reading bradbury at a very young age and tr- still in my heart he he is the definition of storyteller he I, I fell in love with story because of Bradbury. And then, you know, years later with Gaiman, I really, he's another one who loves story. You can see it in his writing. And and so I really approached these books kind of with that spirit, um, certainly never hoping to reach those heights, but but approaching it with that spirit of story for the sake of story. So I think the books can be read both ways. They can be read for the for the the subtext or or they can be read just just for story. I hope, I hope they can. I think they do. Um, (laughs) I mean, I, I love, I love them for both reasons that you mentioned. Um, I am just wholly captivated by just even some chapters in specifically uh, of, of like the clackety, um, the, the, the story thief in the clackety is one of my absolute favorite chapters of any book ever um, oh thank you i love the story thief oh my gosh i i adored it and after i finished that chapter i kind of had to put the book down for a moment just to like process it just to digest it because sometimes you find something that really is just so magical you you kind of just need to savor it for a little bit of time um, and that was absolutely a lot of my experience with these two books oh thank you so with regards to inspiration, as we kind of close out here, I want to ask, because I do have a lot of listeners who are parents um, or a lot of listeners who interact with kids or they work with kids a lot. How do we both as readers and as parents or uh, call them you know, literary models, how do we model inspiration for kids? How do we encourage that in them, um, both through what they read, but also what they create? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's lots of short answers, right? And some of them are obvious. Read to kids, let them read to you, give them access to books, whatever that looks like in in your life, in your home. Um, But, but give them access to story. And it doesn't just have to be books, right? Story can come in all sorts of different ways. So let them explore story, let them tell stories. And I think, I think really not just um, support their belief in magic, support their belief in the surreal. So, you know, I, I know that, that my kids are past believing in certain holiday figures, but I have one child who really kind of wants to play the game and still talk about it and believe in it and make it part of what we do. And you know what? That that magic is still there for her. We're gonna we're gonna keep doing it. I I think really respecting that their imaginations are so much better than ours because they are so unbridled. Kids have such incredible unbridled imaginations, and so the more we can do to to keep restraints off of those. And again, whatever their their storytelling, whatever it is, if it's if it's drawing or singing or or reading or writing, whatever way they want to engage in storytelling, I think let them engage and support them in it. 
because they, they will have a better shot at being creative adults if if we don't kind of squash that that amazing amazing imagination that all that kids are equipped with when they're little thank you so much for that answer um i i am getting a little bit teary-eyed <laughs> thinking about that because i i think it's such a powerful powerful influence so for people who would like to know more about your upcoming projects and um, know a little bit more about you, uh, where can they find more information online? So uh, I do have a website, laurasenf.com. It, it's, I update it occasionally. I'm still pretty active and easy to find on Twitter. Um, recently joined Blue Sky, trying to figure out how to navigate that. I'm on Instagram. I mean, there aren't many, I'm like the only Laura Senf, so I'm pretty easy to find everywhere, to be honest. Um, and I love, I love talking to readers. I love talking to book people. Um, and, you know, especially if you've got a kiddo that, that has read the Clackety and enjoyed it, let me know. I love to send things to kids. I love to send them little notes and bookmarks and stickers and stuff. So I'm always excited to hear from parents and, you know, grownups who, who have kids in their lives. Because I, I, I've told the story before, but I, I was given years ago as a teenager, a Ray Bradbury book, and I opened it up and it was signed to me. And it, it had a note to me. And it had come um, at a time when I was really doubting my own, my own writing. And that still can give me goosebumps. And if I can provide even a tiny bit of that to young readers by writing to them, handwriting to them specifically and sending them a little something, you know, I want to be part of that legacy. So, uh, so always reach out and let me know those things too. You can get all my information on my website. It's all out there. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has really been a wonderful conversation for me. Um, I do hope that you listener, uh, if you're out there, go pick up the Clackety and the Night Housekeeper when it's out October 17th. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. I, I love I love talking story and talking books. This is a great conversation. <laughs>